All right, so this week we are going to talk about the theme, what is the Bible? And the reason we need to start with this topic is because if we don't understand truly what the Bible is, we will get theology wrong and we won't live the Christian life that God wants us to live. So this is like foundational. And maybe you're here and you've been a follower of Jesus a long time. You've heard about the the reason of what really is the Bible. Whether you're learning this for the first time or you've heard this before, we want this to be something we really understand as the true foundation of our faith, okay? And just to... Um, for anyone that wants more information on this, all of my teachings are from Dr. Grudem's books, Christian Beliefs and Systematic Theology. For those of you that don't know who Dr. Wayne Grudem is, he is currently a professor at Phoenix Seminary, but he is one of the best theologians of our time. He not only has written many, many books on different topics, but he was on the board that wrote the English Standard Version of the Bible, which one is one of the more literal translations of the Bible from the Greek and Hebrew. And so he very much knows the Bible and what he's talking about. And I got to have him for three of my classes in seminary, and he is just a man of character as well as intelligence. So it is his teachings that I am teaching you from, just so you know. So this is not all of my own wisdom for sure. So let me just pray about this topic, and then we will dive in. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. It is living. It is active. It convicts us and encourages us and comforts us. And it shows us what is true. And God, we are so privileged because not only are we in a generation where we have the entire Bible, but we are in a generation that we can freely read and teach and learn the Bible in our country. And there are so many people that still don't have Bibles, still don't have them in their language, or it is illegal to have one. And so we come to you today thanking you for this precious gift of your word, your God-breathed word that we are going to learn about today. In your name we pray. Amen. You know, I remember I lived in China for two years as a secret missionary, and we had to lock our single Bible somewhere hidden in case the party comes and knocks on our door and tries to check out where we're living to see if we need to be kicked out of the country. And they told us, you know, not only do you need to hide your Bible, but you better start memorizing it in case you end up in prison, because you're not going to have a Bible in prison if you end up in prison in a foreign country. And that is when I fell even more in love with the Bible, thinking not just do I have one, and many of us have multiple ones, but is it really hidden in our heart? We don't know where America's going. We don't know what's gonna happen. And we want to make sure that we have fallen in love so much with God's word that it is starting to hide in our hearts. And that was when I really, really cherished the Bible. So when we start to talk about what is the Bible, here is a question that you want to ask yourself to discover what do you actually believe. Part of this class is you're going to realize something's going to come up of, oh, I didn't realize I believed this, but the Bible actually says this, right? You're going to be surprised sometimes of how culture or a different background you were raised in taught you something that's actually not in 
the Bible, right? So you want to ask yourself this, how have I come to believe that? How have I come to believe my views on certain things in the Bible? What does the Bible say on that subject? You need to ask yourself, do I even know what the Bible says on that subject, right? So those are the two questions you need to ask to become more self-aware of what really are your beliefs on certain things as we go through topics each week. And some things you might be surprised. Oh, that's what the Bible says, right? So you want to say, how have I come to believe that? And where does the Bible say it on that subject? Because every single one of our Christian beliefs needs to be backed up by scripture. Not our experience, not our tradition or our religious tradition, but by the scripture, Okay, so that is so important. So we are going to assess four categories when we talk about the Bible today. We're going to talk about the authority of the word, the clarity of the word, the necessity of the word, and then the sufficiency of the word or the Bible. That is what we are going to talk through. Why are those four things important? And if you meet a person that says, hey, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer in God, and they don't validate those four things, it could be dangerous as you start to observe their theology because their theology might become skewed. So it's very important that we believe these four things and that as we learn other people and as we disciple people, do they believe these four things? So we're gonna talk about what they are and we will start with authority of the Bible. So what this means is all of the words in the Bible are God's words. All of the words in the Bible are God's words. They are not up for debate and we cannot erase them. Because they are God's words, this is important. If we disbelieve or disobey the word of any part of scripture, we are actually disbelieving and disobeying God. We can't say, oh, I don't, that's not important for me. I don't really care about that. When you disregard sections of the word of God, you are actually disregarding God. Does that make sense? Okay, so we want to make sure what does the scripture say? And it's all God breathed. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all scripture is God breathed, all of it. And 2 Peter 3.16, this was interesting because it said that he wrote this, he wrote his book, Peter, according to the wisdom that was given to him by God. So even though it was written by man's hands, it says that it was given by the wisdom of God himself. And so we know that even though men were a part of writing this, that it is God's words. So believing the words in the Bible are God's word is what makes us believe in what we call evangelical Protestant theology. That's what we're going to be teaching you over these months. Evangelical Protestant theology and what I want to talk about a little bit today is what is the difference between evangelical theology and liberal theology? You might hear that. You might know of liberal churches. What does that mean? And I want to reveal to you some of how an evangelical believes and some of how a liberal theology would believe. And so I want to really make this pop out to you so that as you engage with different pastors online, different podcasts you listen to, different churches that your family members might attend, you will be able to hear 
if they might be being led by something that's more of a liberal theology than an evangelical theology. So that is the first thing I want to help you understand today. Liberal theologians believe that the Bible is a fallible, there's failure in it, right? A fallible human record of religious thoughts and experiences. The Bible is not perfect to them. They would say the Bible has historical inaccuracies, internal inconsistencies, and outdated theological and ethical teachings that we must reject as unacceptable in today's culture. So what is more important to them is affirming today's culture than what the Bible says. Pretty much they're saying the Bible is too archaic for us today. So I'm going to show you a few of these ways of thinking about it, okay? Liberalism would believe this. They have the worldview that the natural world, or naturalism, is all we can know. All we can know is the natural, what we see, what science shows us, okay? But Christianity, evangelical Christianity, believes that there is the supernatural. Miracles happen. The miracles in the Bible are not fables. They are true. The seas were really split, right? Those plagues really happened. People were really healed. Jesus really rose from the dead. And so we believe that supernatural events happen. Second, liberalism believes the Bible is just a human book, not God's words, and that supernatural events are a myth. But evangelicalism says the Bible is both human and divine, human and divine, but are God's very words, a divine revelation from God, and so we can trust it. Liberalism. They will say doctrine is not important. They would never teach this class. <laughs> okay. People's experiences should be the test of truth. That is what liberalism says. Your experience is higher than the word of God. But Christianity says doctrine is a statement of historical facts with their meanings. Without true doctrine, there is no true Christian faith. So we must learn this doctrine. That's why you're in this class. And that's why I want to teach it. Liberalism. Oh, this, this, this first one's going to sound really good. This is what they say. God loves all people no matter what they do. God is the father of all people. All religions worship the same God. God is God. We all worship the same God. We're all getting to God just different ways. Okay? That's a lot of Unitarianism when people say that. Okay? But we know that the Bible says you are either an enemy of God or a child of God. We are all made, every single person is made in the image of God, but you are either an enemy of God or you are a child of God because you've accepted Jesus and you are now in his family, right? So Christianity says all people will be held accountable for their actions. Liberalism does not like to be held accountable for their actions. Look at that. I mean, people don't even have to go to jail anymore for shoplifting, right? Like yeah. nobody is accountable for their actions. And God calls all people to repent of their sins. Oh, but you've been a victim. You don't need to repent of your sins. You've just been, we've all been victimized, but we're all still sinners, okay? So we still have to be accountable for our actions and repent of our sins. And the only way to know God is through Jesus.
That is evangelical Christianity. There is no other way. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Liberalism says human beings are inherently good. You don't know how many people my age or younger, they look at their two-year-old and they're like, oh, but he's good. He's innocent. I'm like, he was a sinner since he came out of your womb, right? I mean, those little things are selfish, right? I mean, a lot of their crying is sometimes because they're just self-focused, right? Like it says, there is no one that's righteous. No, not one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We don't come out perfect and then oops, sin. Because of Adam and his sin, we are all born sinners. But liberalism thinks human beings are inherently good. And so we need to realize, no, we are all sinful, and thus we need God's forgiveness. That's evangelicalism. Liberalism says this, Jesus was a great moral teacher. He was a remarkable human. He was an example of someone we should imitate with our life. Well, that sounds good. They will preach Jesus in their pulpits as a good person. Let's model his life. They could have great application. But a Christian, an evangelical Christian says, no, Jesus was God and man. He has to be God and man, not just a good man. He has to be God and man. Jesus is the savior who died for our sins in whom we trust. And he had to be born of a virgin. If Jesus was not born of a virgin, he would have been born with sin just like the rest of us. But liberal theology says there's no way, because that's a miracle, Mary could not have been a virgin. They disregard the whole story of how Jesus came to this earth. Liberalism says salvation comes through human self-improvement and the improvement of society. It's the idea that God poured out his wrath on Christ and that contradicts the idea that God loves us. How could God have wrath and how can God love us? So what do they say? God is love. And they ignore that God has wrath for sin. But Christianity says salvation comes through trusting in Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. And Jesus bore the wrath of God against the sin that we deserve. Wrath is real, but Jesus took our wrath. Next, liberalism says the church is an association for human self-improvement. A lot of times you can go to churches and the sermons could be just a self-help message. It's no longer something that's actually in the Bible. And they believe that the purpose of the church is to renew society, not to evangelize individual people. And that is what's called the social gospel. You might have heard of that in the last few years, but a lot of churches are saying, our job as a church is to fix society, and it's not about sharing Jesus and the gospel with others. So they do a lot of great help, but they're not actually sharing the eternal help of the gospel, right? The other thing a liberal church will say is the church should not have doctrinal boundaries for their leadership. You can believe this, you can believe that, you can believe that, and we're all okay that we have all different views on the Bible, okay? That's a lot, again, Unitarianism, which might sound like, oh, we're unified in the body of Christ, but it's very dangerous if a church does not hold to the same theological views. And so that could be a slippery slope for relativism. Well, you can believe what you believe, I'll believe what I believe. So we wanna be careful if you see churches do that. Christianity, the church was created by Jesus to be fellowship of redeemed people. I want you to hear that again, because that's important. The church is created by Jesus 
to be a fellowship of redeemed people. The purpose of the church is to worship God, build up believers, and then proclaim the gospel to unbelievers. So we want to help our churches be one that is building us up, we're fellowshipping with believers, and we're sharing the gospel with unbelievers. So our conclusion, when you think about what do liberals believe versus evangelicals, is literally liberalism is not Christianity. It's not Christianity. You can't say, I'm a liberal Christian. It's an oxymoron because they don't believe in the same gospel that we believe because there is no wrath of God and you're a good person and you don't need to repent and you don't need forgiveness. You just need to have self-improvement when you go to church. Do you see that? And so it is very, very dangerous. So I want to ask you this. What sticks out to you the most after hearing this list? And why do you think liberal theological churches are so dangerous? Why do you think they're so dangerous? Or what sticks out to you when you heard some of that list? As you start to engage with people, your neighbors, family members, and you have a spiritual conversation, they might say, oh, well, I go to church. I believe in God. Yeah. Let me just tell you, the sentence, I believe in God, probably means they're not a believer. Followers of Jesus say, I believe in Jesus, or I follow Jesus. Someone just says, I believe in God. Don't walk away and say, well, maybe they're a Christian. Maybe they're probably not, okay, because they're believing in a higher power. But what does the Bible say? It says that even the demons believe and shudder. They believe in God. So what's the difference? You know, so when you hear that, say, well, tell me more of that. You say you believe in God. What do you think about Jesus? Just ask a clarifying question. What's your thoughts on Jesus? Who do you think he was or who did he say he was? And see what they say. You don't need to be all of this stuff. We are always trying to lead people back to Jesus and who Jesus said he was. Hey, can we, can we look at what the scripture said about who Jesus is? It's pretty profound and it has changed my life. Okay, so we don't want to just say, oh, I, I hope they are a believer because they said they believe in God. Most likely, they're not followers of Jesus and they don't have a personal relationship. Okay, so we are seeing, and you, you, you kind of answered this, Jeannie, that, that the liberal church is growing much faster than the evangelical church because it is appealing more to people. Socially, um, they feel like they're doing good because they're doing social work, social help to the community. Um, they get some self-help in, in a sermon that's about themselves. And so this is something we really need to be aware of. And the reason I, I put this in this section is because this is why we need to believe in the authority of God's word. That's the focus of what we're starting to talk about is the authority of God's word. And what they have said, when they said God's word is not authoritative, they can believe all these other things. That one view can change so much, right? So we want to think about this question. Why do you think holding this view that the words in the Bible are God's very words is crucial for us to believe? Why is it crucial to believe that the words in the Bible are God's very words? Why do we need to believe that? Scripture gains authority through itself. Okay, we know that the Bible is authoritative because the Bible says that it is authoritative. And that might seem like a circular argument, but think about it this way. There is no higher authority to determine that it's authoritative because God is God. How else could anyone validate it besides God, right? It doesn't make it invalid, even though it seems like a circular argument that scripture validates scripture. But um, 
he needs to be absolutely authoritative. Otherwise, God would not be the highest authority, right? If it was something else. So God is the highest authority and God says this is his word. When you think about the Old Testament, now I normally use the English Standard Version when I teach. The term, thus says the Lord in the Old Testament, thus says the Lord, thus says the Lord, right? People are saying that, prophets are saying that, thus says the Lord. That is mentioned 417 times in the Old Testament. It is validating. God is saying this. God is saying this. These are not my words. These are God's words. And think about this. If a prophet in the Old Testament didn't speak the exact words of God, if he had a prophecy and it didn't come true, he was considered a false prophet. Okay. And so every prophet that speaks in the Old Testament that is written down We know that his prophecies came true and that he was true in what he shared that the Lord told him to say. So we have written records of words that are claimed to be God's own words. What about passages that don't say, thus says the Lord? How do we know those aren't just man-made? Well, I like how Jesus validated the Old Testament in Matthew 19, 5. He was talking to the Pharisees. They were debating him about divorce. And what he did was he took them to Genesis 2.24 to discuss, do you not know? Do you not remember what God said? And Genesis 2 is actually like a narrator saying it. And so what Jesus is proving is that even when scripture is a narration, you following me? Like it's not God saying, thus says Lord, but it's somebody narrating the story. Jesus said, God said that. He proved that in Matthew 19, 5, about Genesis 2, 24. So not that we have to discuss what that was about. It's the point that he's validating narrative as God's words. Do you follow what I'm saying? Okay. And so this means that Jesus could quote any Old Testament passage and say that it was from God. Jesus himself was validating. These words are God's words. 2 Peter 1.21 says that men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. They were filled with the Holy Spirit and the Holy Spirit gave them the words to say. And that's why we say the words of scripture are spoken by the Holy Spirit. He was a part of giving them the words to say. 1 Timothy 5.18, Paul quotes Jesus's words found in Luke 10.7. And he says that Jesus's words are scripture. So we obviously know Jesus is God. So his words are also God's words, right? Because he says, if you've seen me, you have seen what? The Father, Father, right, Susie? So, So if you've seen me, you have seen the Father. So Jesus's words are also God's words. And Jesus said only what was God's will. Okay, so we're validating narrative. We're validating prophets. We're validating Jesus. All of it is God's word. But just because the words of scripture are God's words, this is important, doesn't mean that God dictated every word of scripture to human authors. Here's the exact word you need to write down. Okay, that's interesting. That is interesting because Hebrews 1, 1 says, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. And this is how, at many times and in many ways. So he spoke to the prophets in different ways. What are some ways? Dreams, visions, okay? So so there's different ways God gave the words to the people to be able to write down or speak out. Luke, he used eyewitnesses instead of dreams and visions to write the passages that he wrote. And so there are different ways. 
So God's providential oversight and direction of the life of each author was such that, think about it, they had different personalities, they had different backgrounds, they had different training and abilities, right? They had different historical data in front of them when they were writing. And yet, they were able to write exactly what God wanted them to with their personality, with their information. Does that make sense? And so it is a little different. You'll notice, right, you're reading and Paul writes differently than John and things like that. We want to think about this as well. Scriptures are not just true, they are truth itself. Think about the difference. Scripture is not just true, but scripture is truth itself. It is truth. So what do you think the difference is between something that is true and saying that it's truth itself. How is that different? So in God's character, he cannot lie and he cannot speak falsely. That is God's character, right? And so there can be no untruthfulness in the scriptures or God would have been lying, right? Because of God's character, we know that the scripture is truthful. So since the words of the Bible are God's words, and since God cannot lie, it is correct to conclude that there is no untruthfulness or error in any part of the words of scripture. Proverbs 35 says this, every word of God proves true. Every word of God proves true. And Psalm 119.89 says, Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Does that mean culture is more important? No. His word is firmly fixed in the heavens. It is true for eternity. And Matthew 24.35 says, My words will not pass away. My words will not pass away. So people who think the Bible is too archaic are not honoring these passages. John 17, 17 says, your word is truth. So we want to think about what is the difference between God's words are true and God's word is truth. And the difference is significance. God's words are true or God's word is truth. This statement says that God's word is truth encourages us to think of the Bible as not just being true in the sense that it confirms to some higher standard of truth, but rather think of the Bible as this. It's the final standard of truth. Because our society says right now, there is no morality in sexuality, right? There is, you cannot have any moral stance on sexuality. But the Bible says, no, I am the final standard of truth. There is morality in your sexuality right? And so we have to go back and say, people, is the Bible your final standard of truth? You need to ask them that before you talk to them about sleeping with somebody or different things, you know, that you might also know the Bible says, but do they see that the Bible is the final standard of truth? Because if not, they don't care that the Bible has some other command for their life, right? Let's say I see a fact in scripture and I think, well, that seems contrary to something in life, right? Life is proving this, but the Bible's saying this, then we must be misunderstanding our experience, okay? The Bible is more authoritative than our experience. Now, this is also something important to realize about the Bible. So the, the Bible does, is not exhaustive on every single topic in the world, right? It's not gonna tell you how to do this or that on certain topics. So the Bible is not exhaustive on every topic, 
And it doesn't tell us everything we need to know on every single subject, right? It's not a major encyclopedia. But why do you think that's okay to not expect that from the Bible? The Bible does not cover every single topic. Why is that okay when we say this is where we get our final truth on everything? This is, this is what we have to reconcile. It's the final truth on everything. So why is it okay that it's not exhaustive on every topic? The Bible in its original form, right, how it was originally written, does not affirm anything that's opposite of any facts, okay? It's, not, it's always going to affirm facts, not something contrary to fact. And so we need a peace of mind and confidence in it. But our ultimate conviction is that the words are God's words. They come from the Holy Spirit. And through the words of the Bible, our hearts can give us an inner assurance. I mean, have you experienced that? You're in the Bible. You experience something. You're like, this is true. But the problem is, as so many people don't read the Bible, they don't have that extra inner assurance that, no, this, this thing is miraculous. This thing has changed my life. This thing has ministered to me exactly. You know, that verse popped out at you and like, that's what I needed today. Well, that's not going to happen to you. You're not going to have an inner assurance if you're not in the word of God, right? I'll tell you a little secret about me. There are times I take my Bible and I literally give it a kiss, you know, because I'm like, I can't kiss God. I'm going to give my Bible. I'm going to give it a big hug, you know, because it's like, it just means so much to me, right? And so part of the authority is just knowing it, it is true because we've been reading it and it affirms it. The Bible is historically accurate. It is internally consistent. It contains prophecies that were fulfilled hundreds of years later, and it influences the course of history more than any other book, and it has changed millions upon millions of lives. It is real and it is active, okay? Now, can any of you answer this? What does biblical inerrancy mean, the word inerrant? When we're saying authority, authority means, you know, it's more important than anything else that we submit to it. But now we're saying it's without error. So what does that mean? And this is pretty interesting because it doesn't mean in your Bibles, there's not an error. Okay. The definition of inerrancy focuses on the question of truthfulness and falsehood in the language of scripture, okay? Truthfulness versus falsehood in the language of scripture. Now you need to understand that because that, that is more important than taking that one verse that says every dot and tittle. We get hung up on that, every dot and tittle, okay, right? Because what I mean by that is he says, you know, everything is exactly how it's supposed to be. And people think that comma is supposed to be there. And that, okay, that's not true in our Bibles. People, people created the titles that are in your Bibles. That's not even in the Bible, right? Somebody added that. Language can be vague with imprecise statements, and yet it doesn't mean it's not true. So when people spoke in the Bible, they might have given an imprecise statement while they're talking in their culture, but that doesn't mean it's not true, okay? So inerrancy has to do more with truthfulness than every single dot and tittle is exactly right. Does that make sense? Even though there's a verse on that, the ultimate point is that it is truthful, not with a degree of precision with which the, the events happen. And this is where liberal theologians come at us because they're like, well, here it says this many miles. And in this chapter, it says this many miles. So look, there's a contradiction. And we're like, oh, I guess so. So now I can't trust the Bible, right? And so this is how, this is key to understand this difference, okay? So the Bible can still be inerrant, 
not have errors in its truthfulness, right? You following me? And include loose or free quotes because each culture shares things differently, okay? Another way to think about it is sometimes they might say about this many people, like you think about um, feeding the 5,000, right? It wasn't feeding 5,000 because there were men and children, <laughs> right? So we have no clue what the real number is, right? And so they were allowed to just say that though. And we don't, and do you think it was really just 5,000 or do you think they actually just approximated that number. I think they approximated that number, right? And so they're allowed, the authors are allowed to use approximations, they're allowed to use different measurements, and that doesn't mean it's untruthful. Do you see the difference? We're just trying to make sure the Bible is true, not that every single little thing like that is accurate. That's the difference, accurate versus truthful, okay? Not that it's inaccurate, but it, you see what I'm saying? Based on the culture is how they explain things. So next, we cannot pick and choose what parts of the Bible are important and which ones are unimportant. Okay, if we're going to say the Bible's authoritative, it's authoritative even in the book of Malachi, even the book of Leviticus, <laughs> you know, the certain books that maybe we haven't read or wanted to read or understand. And so that is important. The whole purpose of scripture is to say everything it does say on whatever subject. Okay, every one of God's words in scriptures was deemed by him important to us. So everything in scripture is there because God had intended it to be there. And he doesn't say anything unintentional. So if you haven't read the whole Bible, you want to say, okay, God cares about putting that in the Bible. So I need to figure out how to care about why he put it in the Bible and how to apply that to my life. So why do you think the debate of inerrancy, now that I tried to explain what it means, it's about truthfulness, not detailed accuracy. Why do you think the debate on inerrancy has become such a large issue in our culture, especially liberal theologians versus evangelical? I want you to think about this too. As Christians go through life learning to know their Bibles better and they are growing in maturity because they're in their Bibles, do you think they would tend to trust the Bible more or less? More. The more you're in the Bible, the more you're going to trust it because the more you're going to see it's true, <laughs> you know? So sometimes you need to just encourage people, well, maybe just read your Bible. So next we're going to talk about clarity. The clarity of scripture means that the Bible is written in such a way that it is able to be understood. Whoa, whoa, whoa. How do we reconcile that, right? The Bible is able to be understood, but here's how. It takes time to understand the Bible. It takes effort to understand the Bible. We have ordinary means to learn what the Bible is. We have the Holy Spirit who can help reveal to us what the Bible is saying. But the reality is, is our understanding might be imperfect for the rest of our life. Okay, we're never going to perfectly understand the Bible in our lifetime, even if we're the best theologians. But that does not mean God is not clear. He is God and we are not, right? Psalm 19.7 says this, The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise the simple. God, I don't understand this. I'm simple-minded. Make me wise. And Jesus actually blames the misunderstandings of the Pharisees, not on the scripture themselves, but on those who misunderstood it or failed to accept what the Bible said. And so Jesus' famous saying was, have you not read? Have you not read? And it's like, people, read your Bibles. He keeps saying, have you not read? And 
Then Jesus says in the 24, 25, I mean, ooh, I can't imagine. If Jesus said this to me, I'd be so convicted, okay? He says this, O foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. So he blamed the failure of understanding on the reader, okay? And not on the scripture themselves. So we want to say it's true. Some of the passages in the Bible are easier to understand than others. But God wrote it expecting that we would be able to understand it if we needed to and if we asked the Holy Spirit. So I have come to the place where I'm like, okay, Lord, I have read that and I have read that and I've asked for, and you have just not made it clear to me. So I must not need to know that yet. <laughs> and I kind of have peace about it. If you're doing the effort, you've done the research, I've read commentaries. And sometimes I, there's even debatable issues about I'm like, yep, I don't have a an opinion on that one yet, or I haven't come to a resolution on that one yet, that's okay. You know, so it's okay to be where you're at on this journey. One thing I was seeking when I was a sophomore in college, I went and sold books door to door for Thomas Nelson back in the day when books, you know, mattered. And I was in North Carolina and in North Carolina, there was a lot of people in the holiness denomination. And I would meet them and we're Christians. Oh, if only you could speak in tongues. I'm like, I am really missing out because that is not my spiritual gift, you know? And I prayed and I prayed and I'm like, please give me this gift of tongues. It seems like this big thing I'm missing. And at the end of the day, I studied the scriptures and I had to have peace of mind that not every believer has to have the gift of tongues, you know? But boy, was I being told, no, that's your next step of maturity. And I'm like, you know what? I tried, I tried. That was not given to me. I have different spiritual gifts. And so I had to wrestle with that. So you want to ask yourself, I would especially say with the Old Testament, because that's sometimes a little more intimidating to read than the New Testament. And I want you to think about what makes you intimidated by it. What makes you intimidated to read certain books of the Bible? Because Jesus is asking us to know the Old Testament, to try to understand it and try to obey it. And when you think about it, when he exhorted the Pharisees, have you not read? That was a thousand years after the Old Testament was written. So it's not like that just happened to them, right? He's not talking to the Israelites in the desert. He's talking to someone. So now we're 2,000 years past, but he's still asking us, have you not read? Have you not read? And maybe that's the conviction personally for you today is what have you not read? And when we talk about understanding the scripture as a process, it takes time. So I want you to think about this numerically, okay? If you read the Bible every day for a year, okay, let's, if you just go to church every week, it's 52 weeks, right? If you go to Bible study like this, it's 104 weeks, right? But if you read the Bible too, that's 365 times you're in the Word of God plus that 104, right? And so that way you would be in the Word 521 times in one year. I mean, where would you be next September if you were in the Word, in a Bible study, and at church? In one year, how much quicker would you grow than someone that just comes to church faithfully, but they only heard the Word of God 52 times? 52 versus 521? you think you're going to understand the word of God better in one year? Yes. And then you think about a person that comes to church faithfully, it would take them a decade, literally 10 years to learn what you learned in one year. 
One year. It would, for them to get to the 520, it would take them a decade of going to church to learn from someone else what you would learn in one year if you faithfully did all that. I mean, that's pretty convincing. So you think about, wow, I really could learn the Bible if I just got up and started doing it, you know? And so you think about if you're faithfully from today for the next decade of your life, you're in the Word of God, you're in a small group, and you're in the Bible as often as you can, almost daily, all right? You would be in the Word of God 5,210 times. I mean, we would all have read the Bible over multiple times by then. We would better understand what Exodus has to do with things in the New Testament, like Hebrews, and things would start to make more sense, right? And so I just want to put it in perspective. It really does just take some commitment and time for the Bible to get less and less intimidating, okay? Another thing I want to present to you is, can the Scripture have two different meanings. If you believe something and I believe something different, does that mean the Bible can have two different meanings? And the answer is no. The Bible cannot have two different meanings and it cannot change over time. The meaning of the Word of God cannot change over time. But you can have multiple applications. So Margie and I could read the same thing and say, oh, I need to apply this to my life and she'll apply something different to her life. But it's going to have the same meaning. Does that make sense? Application can be different, but meaning of the Bible does not change throughout time. And that is a big situation with the LGBT conversation with affirming churches is they are saying, oh, this meaning has changed over time. And you cannot do that with the Bible. So we want to think about this with clarity. With God's character, he's an omnipotent, which means all-knowing God, who created the gift of language so he could communicate clearly to us. He gave us the gift of language. He's choosing to communicate to us through his word. So he must know this is the most effective way to communicate to us. And scripture can be understood where it's translated accurately. I do want you to understand, though, some translations are paraphrases. And some are more literal. So again, if you're going to start studying systematic theology, what does the Bible really say on this topic, whatever this topic is? You are going to want to choose a more literal translation for that study versus maybe something you enjoy reading in a relational way. For example, the English Standard Version is literal. The NASB is literal. Obviously, New King James would be literal. I don't really use that one, but I use NASB, ESV. The newer version that's out is called the Christian Standard Version. It is also pretty literal. So those are the, I would say, between NASB, ESV, which is what I use, and Christian Standard. Those are the ones, okay, I want to do a word study. Like let's say I was teaching young moms on discipline. I'm going to choose a literal translation. Then NIVs right in the middle. NIVs trying to translate literal, but also make it easy for the reader. The, ch- the one challenge with your NIV is they've chosen to eliminate where sometimes it says he or she and make it gender neutral sometimes. So if you're going to study something on what does it really mean? Is this passage really just for men or is this passage really for women? Sometimes that will not always be clear in an NIV. Doesn't mean you can't read it. I'm just saying that's where it can get a little tricky is with the he's. They make them as people instead of he. And sometimes the he men actually men. (laughs) Okay. And then where you have a more easily readable, but these are called paraphrases, is like the New Living um, translation. So it's easy to read. But what they're doing is they're taking a thought that was in the Greek or Hebrew or Aramaic and then saying, what does that thought mean in English? I'm going to write that thought down. 
which could then, it's fine, but it could be, it could maybe mess you up if you're trying to find, again, a topic on a, where's grace found? Where is justification found? Where, when you're trying to study certain things, you probably wouldn't want to use that as your study Bible, but it can be your reading Bible. Does that make sense? I'm just, if you're going to study something deep. So let's go to the necessity of the Bible. Why is the Bible necessary? Ultimately this, no one is going to know the gospel if they don't have a Bible or someone teaching them the Bible. The gospel is not general revelation that people just know in creation. They have to hear the word of God that they are a sinner and there is a savior and they need to repent, right? And so the Bible is necessary to grow in our spiritual life. And the Bible is necessary to know God's will, which is what Patty said earlier. And the Bible is necessary for certain knowledge. So general revelation, you might have heard the idea of general revelation versus specific revelation. General revelation is everyone should know there's a creator because of creation and because we have a conscience that convicts us that we do wrong. That's general, but specific revelation is the gospel found in the Bible. And so we want to make sure that we are bringing the Bible to people so they understand the gospel, okay? And finally, we're going to talk about sufficiency of the Bible. The Bible is sufficient. It's all that we need for a person to become a Christian, to obey him as a Christian, and to grow as a Christian. Because remember before we said, oh, the Bible doesn't have every topic in it. Are we okay with that? Well, the Bible is meant to help you become a Christian, grow as a Christian, and obey him as a Christian. Okay, that's the point of the Bible. And so it has everything we need in it for that, right? Does that make sense? So 2 Timothy 3 says it's going to equip us for every good work. 2 Peter 1.3 says the word has everything we need for life and godliness. And so it will show us everything we need to mature in our faith. So here's a tricky thing you might want to write down and think about. Nothing is a sin that is not forbidden in Scripture. Ooh, that's tricky. Nothing is a sin that is not forbidden by Scripture, either explicitly or by implication. So what can happen is the church can become legalistic and create rules that are not in Scripture, right? And so also I'll give you a good example. The Bible says to not get drunk. It does not say you cannot drink. But what happened in America is we had a prohibition era. Remember that? And, and they eliminated all alcohol. And you know what? It didn't work. There was a lot of rebellion. You know why? Because they made a law that was higher than God's expectation. You see that? Like people were building it because they were like, like, no, we're allowed to have alcohol. We're not supposed to get drunk. And so the prohibition actually didn't work because of that. So you want to ask yourself, oh, if it's not in scripture, that's where the freedom comes in. If it's not in scripture, if this doesn't say this is a sin, then I have freedom to go do it. Okay. Now people can take that out of context. You got to know the scripture to know what's not a sin, right? But, but we just want to remember nothing is a sin that's not forbidden by scripture. And everything that's required of us is in God's word. So if it's not in God's word, it's not required of us. Oh, I'm so glad because I'm sure my, I have people that would say, oh, you should be homeschooling your children in today's day and age. And I'm like, well, it doesn't require that in scripture. That's my own personal decision, right? Of what we do with our schooling of our children or things like that. The final, final thing I will say before we go into discussion is no modern revelations 
should be considered equal to scripture. Okay? God does not require us to believe anything about himself that is a new revelation that somebody says to us or some angelic being comes and talks to us. If it's not in the word of God, we should not trust it. Okay? So based on the sufficiency, the Bible is sufficient, how would you respond to someone who's trying to add a teaching to the scripture? What would you say to someone that wants to add a teaching that's not in the Bible, but they want you to abide by this new principle? If it's not already in the word of God, I don't need to believe it. <laughs> okay, you have freedom to not believe it and probably shouldn't. Heavenly Father, I thank you that your word is authoritative and we can trust its truthfulness. Thank you that you want to give us clarity, that as we're faithfully in your word, things are going to become more clear to us and impact our lives even more. Thank you that your word is necessary for people to come to salvation, to understand the gospel, Lord. And I thank you that it's sufficient. It gives us all we need for life and godliness in order to grow and mature and live this life that you want us to live. God, may we not be people that add to your word. We, may we not be people that, that question its authority and help us to submit to what your word says. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen.